Well, good morning. Would you join me opening up a Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1 if you have one? Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can use a Blue Pew Bible uh, in front of you. We'd love for you to follow along there. And you can find 1 Timothy 1 on page 991 there. Um, well, yesterday I went to West Point with my oldest two kids and my father to watch the Army-Navy basketball game. And unfortunately, Army had it the whole way and then lost it at the end. But that's not the point of this introduction. Uh, but it was uh, fun to be up there. We actually joined the Nageli family. It's a family from Grace there. And, and Enoch has been a professor at West Point for the last eight years and uh, graciously invited us to come with them. Uh, but if you've ever been to West Point, uh, you know it's not your average college campus. You can't just kind of come on to campus at West Point like you would do other campuses or or other colleges, because you can't get on without going through uh, pretty um, significant security and through literal security gates. And um, I remember, you know, we would always go when I was a kid, too, to different sporting events, and uh, that you notice that you're getting checked out by armed guards at these security gates. And usually not one, but two, and there were even times in growing up where you'd have to uh, either get out of your car or they'd be kind of searching your whole car and asking for everybody's kind of ID. And, like, I'm starting to get nervous as a 10-year-old, and I don't even know why I'm starting to get nervous. And it's just, you, you know, going to West Point is a different experience than going anywhere else. Um, and then fast forward a few years from when I was a kid, my brother Mike ended up going to West Point. And he began there in the summer of 2000. And uh, I had just begun middle school at the time. And at the end of the first summer, uh, you know, it's been, I don't know, 10 weeks since all those freshman cadets have seen uh, their parents. And so there's a family day and they go. And what you'll often see is a lot of parents going to, you know, their sons or daughters. And they're like checking their well-being. Like, are you eating? Are you sleeping? Is everything okay? And I'm, you know, the, the punk middle school brother. And uh, so my, my first question to Mike is like, uh, did they give you a gun? What's, what's it like? Um, and uh, this probably doesn't surprise anyone. Our family and I had no real experience with, with guns. I can barely to this day like load a water gun without messing it up. Um, but a, a, a hallmark of the military that he very quickly educated me on is that they don't just hand out guns, right? They don't just kind of give access to firearms, but they very much hold a high value on teaching the proper use of a weapon how to handle yourself, how to handle your weapons, so that this country literally can trust you with that. And they are entrusted with a weapon because whether it's military or law enforcement, they are called to protect and serve. Their primary aim, to protect and serve. And if you misuse your weapon, it's not just that you could fail to protect and serve, but you actually can do active harm to those that you were called to protect and serve. And so just the high value that people in those communities put on the handling and use of your weapon. And um, I'll be honest, this introduction uh, took on a, a different kind of feel for me. I wrote this introduction last week, but then woke up to the news this morning that I'm sure many of you saw as well, of another mass shooting, uh, this time in Monterey Bay, uh, Monterey Park, excuse me, California, uh, at a Lunar Year, New Year festival. Uh, Monterey Park being one of the most Asian-American populated cities in the U.S. And um, obviously being here all this morning, I don't know details. Maybe you know more details at this point than I do. But um, isn't it true that that was another reminder we didn't need? Another reminder of the destruction that people are capable of when they misuse a weapon out of the hardness of their own hearts. 
And that lump in my throat that I know I feel in these moments, I know today is especially felt all the more by our um, Asian American brothers and sisters here at Grace and um, just grieving with you. And um, again, unfortunately, putting this introduction in a different light, a more sober light, and pointing all the more to this desperate need we have to trust people with the call to protect and serve. And and we're grateful for those um, in this country that we can trust because we know firsthand what happens when we can't. And we know firsthand the destruction that the mishandling of things like weapons can bring. And this is all a word picture, I think, of Paul's frustration with the elders in the city of Ephesus, which is where Timothy is, where he had sent Timothy to write the ship there, and now he writes this letter as a follow-up to Timothy that we know as 1 Timothy. And that the church in Ephesus, and particularly the elders there, have been entrusted with teaching sound doctrine. Entrusted with sound doctrine, but they're misusing it. And they're misusing God's word and what God meant for salvation to protect and serve. They're using for condemnation. And it's why Paul's angst is just so full here. Of like, you guys are literally doing the exact thing that I, that I sent you to do. That I, that I raised you up, that I trained and equipped you to do. And now the world, not only the church, but the world is impacted by your inability to understand what are you actually called to. Because churches then in Ephesus in the first century and churches now in Ridgewood in the 21st century are all entrusted with the gospel. Can you think about that phrase with me? We are entrusted with the gospel. Stewards of the good news that connects people to Jesus. Like there's, there's no higher calling than being entrusted with the gospel. That, that, that leads people to transformation where families can grow together, where churches can mature in spiritual health and Most of all, where our lives can promote human flourishing in all the places God sends us into each day. We don't come here each day on purpose. On Sundays we gather and that is vital. But Monday through Saturday we we scatter and that's the way it should be. Sent into the places that God has called us to do. And what are we sent into other than to be entrusted with the gospel and promote human flourishing in all those places? And, and so, so the question, I want kind of looming in the background for us as we go through this passage this morning in 1 Timothy and apply it to our own lives is this question. Um, Grace Church, can we honestly say that we can be entrusted with the gospel? Can we be trusted with the gospel? And that leads us to our passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 8 this morning. We're going to verse 11. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. All right, well, this is one of those passages in the New Testament that kind of gets referenced often, or you've seen talked about often, because it contains one of those lists. 
It's one of those lists that Paul and other writers in the New Testament have, this list of vices, this list of sins. There's, there's 14 total in this passage. And one of the concerns is that it often gets plucked out of its context and used, if I can carry the illustration further, as a weapon to condemn others, especially when it involves culturally polarizing words and topics like one that, like homosexuality. And so, all the more, we need to unpack what this means in context. It's one of the many reasons why we choose to preach through books of the Bible verse by verse, because every verse, including the verses here, will be seen in context of what came before it and what will come after it. And if we're not careful, churches and Christians today can misuse this text and do the very thing that has exasperated Paul in the first place. So in the passage we saw last week, Paul had just reminded Timothy that he was sent to Ephesus to charge certain persons, Paul said, he said it twice, certain persons who are elders to not teach any different doctrine. And we said that bad doctrine is like a bad map. It contains roads to nowhere. We're leaving people always searching and never finding. And so their primary job is to serve the church by guarding the gospel. And that is exactly what they seem to not be doing. That's why Paul kind of seems out of his mind beginning this letter. In fact, he warned them of this very thing a few years earlier. Again, we saw this last week. It is a passage recorded in Acts chapter 20. Paul is leaving Ephesus. And he tells them there, this is priority number one for you, for you guys. I'm about to leave. I won't be here anymore. You are now in charge with shepherding and overseeing this church. And the primary thing you have to do is guard the gospel. Like, like elders, you had one job. Uh, there, was, there was this internet phase, I don't know what to call it, I don't know, a few years back. That you still see from time to time. And it was the hashtag, you had one job. And it's often attached with like a picture or a video of somebody who just made this like glaring mistake, right? Like uh, an ex you know, a silly example would be, you know, these people were working on a road that was newly paved and they're putting all the new paint down on the road and uh, all the trucks drive away when they're done and you pull up to it and it says S-O-T-P on the road. And it's like, Bill, you had one job. And, and that's essentially what Paul is doing to the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He's saying, guys, you have one job. Guard the gospel. And in verse 7, he said that Paul said these guys in the church, they, they desire to be leaders. Teachers of the law, he describes it. And they want to lead, and they want to teach, and they want to influence. They want to be the teachers, but they have no clue what they're doing. And no clue what they're saying. And it's doing damage. And then that will lead to a digression to prove his point. Paul will often do this. He'll be kind of writing in his letter, and then he'll kind of go on a little bit of a side road to prove a point that he previously said. So verse 7, he said, they desire to be teachers of the law. They have no clue what they're doing. And then verses 8 through 11, he gives the first example that they have no clue what they're doing. And then verses 12 to 17, which we'll see next week, he gives the next example of why they have no clue what they're doing. So this morning, we're going to see, again, kind of the, the first reason to prove Paul's point, that these guys don't know what they're doing there, and it's doing damage. And this first flaw in their teaching is the misuse of the law, or the mishandling of the law. Uh, we can imply here that the teachers in Ephesus, these elders, were accusing Paul of not caring about the law of God. That's what they're telling the church. Paul, he thinks the law is bad. And so you can't trust Paul. you got to trust us in our view of the law. And so what this ushers us into this morning, and what these verses will lead us to discuss is what is often called the law-gospel distinction. 
So if you're taking notes this morning, that'd be even, even helpful just to write that phrase down. The law gospel distinction. Um, it is among the most important things for Christians to know, even if they don't realize they know it. Or it's one of the most really important defining markers of a believer is that kind of living out the law gospel distinction, even if they can't articulate it. But it will be helpful because it is, again, vital for understanding salvation and how God has saved you. It's vital for raising children in the truth. You're raising kids in your home and you want them to understand the gospel. The law gospel distinction will help you raise your children in the truth of the Lord. It will help for sharing your faith and articulating the gospel with unbelievers. It's certainly important for cultivating healthy doctrine in our churches. And again, maybe most of all, to live a life shaped by love for God and for neighbor, which we saw last week in verse 5. A life shaped by love for God and neighbor that leads to human flourishing. Because that internal transition from law to grace is the most significant transition one will ever make in their life. And I'm, I'm not even speaking in a hyperbole. I don't think I'm overstating that. That transition from living under the law and having being pinned under the law of what you have to do to living under grace and the grace given to you in Christ is the biggest transition you will ever make in your life. Nothing else will top it. And it changes everything. So, so when you read and consume the Bible, whether you're doing it for the first time, you're just starting to read the Bible for the first time yourself, or just year after year, you've been faithful in just your Bible reading, what will happen is you will see this word law all over the place. You'll see it in the Old Testament, and you'll see it in the New Testament. And at its highest level, a law can only be judged based upon who the lawgiver is. Every time you hear or understand a law, you're trying to discern who gave that law to help determine if it's good. And therefore, the law of God is good and purposeful. Why? Because God is good. Like, we sang that for a reason on, re like on repeat this morning, right? Like, God, you're so good. Sometimes those simplest affirmations can do the most to stir your heart for him. God, you're so good to me. And so Paul dismantles any of uh, the lies that his opponents in Ephesus are spreading about him, saying that Paul is saying the law is not good. And then he uses that play on words in verse 8. If your Bible's open, look down again. He says, now, we know that the law is good, comma, if... One uses it lawfully. Paraphrased, the law is good as long as it's actually treated as law. And so with that said, I do think it would be very helpful to briefly share the three major ways that Scripture describes the purposes of the law. Every time you see that word law in, Bible, in the Bible, it's generally one of three purposes that it serves. And understanding this will not only enhance our ability to read and interpret and apply the Bible... But then we'll be able to come back to this passage and see what is Paul saying to Timothy? Which purpose is he talking about here? So three purposes. Hang with me here. Number one, the law restrains. The law restrains. God's law helps us recognize the boundaries between good and evil to restrain our fallen natures. So in this sense, laws are good in that they regulate public life between human beings. And all civilizations and all times has had different versions of laws. And the reason is because they are required to create boundaries between good and evil. And to restrain people from acting out their evil impulses. So, so in the Old Testament, you had ceremonial and civil laws. 
You had things like long lists of dietary restrictions and use for sacrifices that aren't necessarily binding today. And then there were laws on justice and civil interactions that were put in place, again, to provide boundaries for people and keep them from evil. So that's Old Testament. And then you go to the New Testament, and Paul says in Romans 13 that the foundational role and purpose of government is to punish evil and reward good. So, so, so government, in that sense, is God-ordained, and that government is called to reward good and punish evil. And they regulate public life. And so we would say, if you think about this with me, that a law is just, a law is good if it promotes human flourishing and restrains people from actions that would harm others. So you take any law and you ask, is this a good law? Well, you ask the question, does this promote human flourishing? And does it restrain people from harming others? So let's play this out. Let's take a simple law like the speed limit. All right, let's think about speed limits. Why do we have them? Why on every road and highway is there a speed limit that is carved out and enforced? Um, further, why are they almost unanimously accepted? You know what I've never seen? I've never seen a political candidate or a political party say, like, you know what we need in this country? Do away with speed limits. Like, that's what's holding us back. Like, we just got to banish all speed limits and then we'll be better. And the reason is that they're unanimously accepted as good. Because... Why are they good? They restrain drivers from going at a speed that would be a harm to themselves, that would be a harm to people in their car, and a harm to other cars on the road. Um, so my kids are in a phase, I wonder if your kids went through this phase, or maybe they're in that now as well, where they love the fact that they now understand what the speedometer means, and calling me out whenever I'm speeding. Uh, it's like their new hobby in the car. Uh, and we did a lot of road trips this past year. Uh, so they loved telling on me to their mother and updating her on how fast I'm going. Um, you know, like, Mom, Dad is speeding. And I quickly realized I can't even fight them on it. Like, like I, I, if I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not speeding. And they're like, yeah, you are. You're going 72. The sign says 65. And then I finally be like, no, no, no. Everyone knows it's not speeding until you're like 10 miles an hour over. That's just, like, that's just the rule. You just learn that. And they're like, well, then why does the sign say 65? And I just realized I just didn't have the ground to stand on in arguing. You know, I had to resort to this, like the lean, to make sure they can't see the speedometer from behind me and just see how long I can stay in this position comfortably. The vast majority of laws on the books in this country and most countries are undisputed. Because there's a consensus on the restraining need for them and the restraining and the benefit of laws. And then there are a relatively smaller number of laws that do get disputed a lot, and rightfully so, because laws matter. The laws in this country matter for our lives and for the flourishing of others. And so this is a little bit of a side note, but as, as Christians engaged in public life, um, where we advocate for certain laws, where you go to the polls and you have a vote every two years. Um, here's a barometer we can all agree on as believers. That we can discern whether a law is just or not based on the question, does this lead to human flourishing or does it work against it? Does this law lead, or the changing of this law or the banishing of this law lead to human flourishing or does it work against it? 
And if we feel like a law does lead to human flourishing, we support it. And if we feel like a law is, works against human flourishing, we're against it. And now I realize it's not always easy to know. And it's not always kind of black and white, which is a reason for public debate and discourse and having conversations where you try to persuade others and being willing to say, hey, I used to believe that and I was wrong on that and now I believe this. So like, there's, there's reason for that kind of public uh, work, working things out, even amongst believers. But that is the foundational lens through which we should view things. Does this lead to human flourishing? The law is good at first because it restrains. Let's go to number two. Second purpose of the law in the Bible is that the law reveals. God's law reveals that we are guilty before him because we are unable to follow the whole law in our own strength. A purpose of the law is to reveal that we can't follow it all. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 7 when he writes in verse 12, and it'll be on the screen. He says, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's that word, it's good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? In other words, is it the law's fault that I'm guilty? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The law exposes our behavior to be sin when we break the law. When we break the law, it's not the law's fault. When we go against God's standard, it is revealed to us and to others that we are unable to keep it in our own strength. But the law is not the problem. It exposed that our hardened hearts are the problem. Our lack of love for him is the problem. Our lack of love and respect for our neighbor is the problem. And, and, and so the moral law are the laws in the Bible that transcend place and time. They're Old Testament, they're New Testament. It's the moral law. And the epicenter of the moral law is found in the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses to give to Israel, which we'll come back to later. But these laws, in some sense, are given to reveal our sickness and our inability to follow them. So even take the one, do not murder, one of the Ten Commandments. Um, if you felt good about yourself that you have not murdered anybody, Jesus took it up a level in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember? He says, he interprets, he interprets that as not just the physical act of murder, but anytime you've hated someone in your heart, you are guilty of murder. Then he went to sexual morality. He said, it's not just for those who uh, have not committed adultery, but if you've ever lusted after someone in your heart, you're guilty of adultery in God's eyes. Dang it. Right? It's this realization that Jesus has raised the bar. And, and this law now reveals, it shines a light on the fact that we can't follow it perfectly. So the illustration I've used most often with this, and if you've been around a while, you've probably heard this before, but it's the illustration of an MRI machine. What is the job of an MRI machine? Simply, it provides a scan to detect problems in different parts of the body. And they are important, and they are needed, and they are good, and that they expose what is wrong. But the MRI machine can do nothing to heal the problems it exposes. Right? Nobody goes into an MRI machine to get healed. No one ever comes out of one and goes, man, I'm still, like, I'm, I'm still not feeling great. Because they were never meant to heal you. They were meant to reveal what is wrong with you. And in the same way, the law is good and it is vital 
because the law shows us what is wrong in our hearts. But the law cannot save, which we'll come back to in a moment. But first, we look at the third. The third purpose of the law, when you read in the Bible, is that the law sanctifies. This function of the law is for believers only. So those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and seek now to follow Christ, now they see the moral law in the Bible as having a purpose to define the characteristics and the parameters of the life as a disciple. So the law cannot save us, but once we are saved by Christ, the law is a means of grace that can sanctify us, which is a word that means it can grow us to look more like Jesus. It provides the kind of a divine guide to show us what does a love for God look like? What does a love for our neighbor look like? Uh, so there's a, there's a pastor out in the Chicago area. His name is David Swanson. And he wrote a book that I read, I think, this last year. And in the book contained one of the best definitions of a Christian disciple that I have come across. So a disciple of Christ is, again, at its simplest, a follower of Jesus. But fleshed out a little bit, Swanson writes this. And I think we have it up on the screen. Christian disciples follow Jesus into the kingdom of God to become like Jesus through habit-shaping practices that orient their desires in order to do what Jesus does. And you might need to process that and sit on that for a little bit to really unpack it, but I think it gives you the fullest description of what is a disciple. They follow Jesus to become more like Jesus in order to do what Jesus does. And so in this way then, the third use of the law, which was a phrase coined by John Calvin 500 years ago, is to see the moral law of God as a guide to become like Jesus in order to do what Jesus does. All right, so those are the three uses of the law. And I hope that little very brief kind of theological discourse will now help us in this passage. The law restrains, the law reveals, and the law sanctifies. So with that in mind, I'm going to read this passage again in 1 Timothy. And as you hear it, ask yourself, which use of the law is Paul primarily talking about? Verse 8 again. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, Men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. In this moment, writing this letter, I think it's clear that Paul is referring to the first two uses of the law. It restrains and it reveals. Because he says that it is not for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And this is the error that is getting him so worked up in Ephesus. That the elders there are misusing the law. And they're mishandling it. And it's doing damage. And they were making the law in some way to be good in that if you follow it, it will save you. And so they had their things that they said, you follow these things, along with the wild speculations of Myths and genealogies, which we saw last week. And it caused the church to just be confused. 
Like, like this, this list of rules, but then Jesus is still in the picture, but then there's these kind of secret codes of genealogies in the Old Testament that now we're unpacking, and, and everybody's just confused. And Paul is so, has so much angst over it because a church that is confused about the gospel is not a healthy church. Of all the things that you would kind of lay out of, like, what, what makes a church healthy? And there are several things. But at the top of the list, it is a clear understanding of the gospel. And that's exactly what the elders are not able to do. They're, they're, they're supposed to bring clarity and hope with the gospel of grace. And, and, and instead, they're adding these burdens of the demands of the law. To the point where this church doesn't know how they're saved, doesn't know why they're saved, and certainly won't know how to communicate that to the world of Ephesus that they have been called to live on mission in. The law is good, you see, but it is insufficient to save, and God never intended for the law to save. So important. He never intended it to save. But for the lawless and the disobedient, for those far from Jesus, it restrains their sin in order to promote human flourishing. But then more importantly, it reveals their deep spiritual need they have without Christ as their Savior. All right, so let's talk about this list, this list of 14 vices, which again, if you've been in the church a while and you see it, you hear a passage with this list and you're like, okay, it's going to be one of those days at church. All right, let's go. Um, and, and they're just often kind of plucked out and, and sent. And it, it, it's at first glance, it might seem like a random list. Like, like, what was Paul thinking about? What stream of consciousness? Was he just kind of writing out all these different sins? You, you, you could think maybe he was calling out the sins that were especially prominent in Ephesus that he knew, you know, when his time was there that they uh, struggled with most. Maybe it's the sins that are prominent in the lives of the elders themselves. And this is his way of kind of calling them out. I know these things are in your guys' lives. Maybe that's what he was after. Or maybe, and I think this is a belief that's common, I think just in our minds today, is that these sins are just the worst of the worst. Like these are the really bad ones, you know. Like these are the ones you especially got to stay away from. But I don't think it's any of those things. In fact, this is not a random list at all. Some of you might know this, but this list in particular echoes the Ten Commandments, which we said earlier is the summation of God's moral law. So we're going to have an image of the Ten Commandments put up on the screen. I don't know why it's on a scroll. I think that's a rule. You always have to put it on a scroll when you talk about it. Uh, so I don't know why I chose that one. Um, but many of you know about the Ten Commandments, that the first four on that list are sins against God. They are what you might call vertical sins. And then the rest of the list, numbers 5 through 10, are sins against your neighbor, a lack of love for your neighbor, what you could call horizontal sins. And this list in the Old Testament of the Ten Commandments correlates, first and foremost, to Jesus' great commandment that we went over last week in the New Testament. When somebody said to Jesus, Jesus, what's the most important commandment of it all? He said, here's what sums up the entire law, he says, interesting word, love your God and love your neighbor. On this rests everything else, vertical, horizontal. And then these lists of vices in 1 Timothy 1 correlate with them both. 
The first three couplets in the passage, lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, are all sins against God. And then the, 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 what the vertical sin against God is really primarily defined as is taking God off his throne and putting ourselves in his place. Right? That is, that's, a, that's, that's a practical definition of ungodly. To be ungodly is to live your life as if there is no God. And when there is no God, you become God. Because you decide what's best for you, and no authority can tell you what to do because you are living your own life, and only you have that. That is, that is living as a functional God, and that is an ungodly way to live. Literally, there is no God. And then the rest of the list correlates to the sin of others. So as I, um, as I again go through the list in First Timothy, look at how it correlates to 5 through 10. Paul writes, those who strike their fathers and mothers. For murderers, sexually immoral, homosexuality, liars, perjurers, and then the catch-all, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So, I don't think Paul is randomly picking certain vices as if to say, these are the worst of the worst. These are the worst of the people that are out there. But I think it is his way of showing that all rebellion against God's law will negate honor towards God and human flourishing for others. That this encompasses it all. That when we turn against God's order that he has established, we subvert God in a way. We subvert in a way that undermines our and others' well-being and joy. That when we sin against God with this list or anything else that you can think of that would be missing the mark of living the way God has designed, it is doing vandalism to his design in this world. Every time we sin, we vandalize God's design. And so everything on this list then is a display of something opposite of true love. But all these things are rooted in a pursuit of the world which, again, going back to last week, is a road to nowhere. Engaging in these things is a window into our souls that we are living without a map, always searching but never finding. And therefore, the proper use of the law is to teach that it is not given to save ourselves by following it, but it is given to reveal our need for a Savior through grace. Right? This is the law-gospel distinction. If you trailed off in your sermon and I get it, come back with me here for the last few minutes. This is the law-gospel distinction. That the law reveals our need, but only the gospel of Jesus Christ delivers our need. And so here's how we're going to wind down and ensure that the emphasis of this passage is within context for us in 2023. Um, Paul's concern for the mishandling of their weapon of sound doctrine, Paul's concern for the elders teaching a different doctrine was not just because the church would be confused, but again, the church's witness to the world would be lost. Which is why it's so upsetting for him that these elders are using the gospel, or not using the gospel. They're mishandling doctrine as a way to condemn and not as a way to save. They're, they're destroying, they're not protecting and serving, right? And Paul's point, above all else in this passage, is this. Not to call out the sinful world for how sinful it is, but to boast in how amazing God's grace is. That's the point of the list. 
not to condemn the world, but to boast in the saving, amazing grace of God. To behold him. Behold the one who didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's why Paul's like, no, 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 elders. Like, like God's law is not meant to be the standard that you got to tell people, you got to live this way. You got to live like me. You got to do these things. And then maybe someday you'll go to heaven. He goes, no, no chance. That's the one thing I told you not to do. Here's where we understand why he's so upset. That he wants us to understand that the law reveals our inability to follow him. Bringing us into the gospel of grace. David Platt writes about the law gospel distinction in this way. Rather than trying to paraphrase him, I'm just going to quote him. He'll be on the screen. Here's what Platt says. He's a pastor in Virginia. He says, the good news that Jesus came and lived in perfect obedience to God's law so that he was able to die on the cross to pay for the price for your disobedience. And then rising from the grave, he opened up the way for you to unite your life with his and be counted righteous before God. This is it. This is what we are stewards of. This is what it means to be entrusted with the gospel. And without doing so, without this proper use, people remained pinned down by their own sin. They remained in darkness. They remained thinking that Christians in the church just kind of hate them and are just waiting for them to burn in hell someday and can't, and can't wait for that day to come. But this is not the gospel that we are entrusted with. And so I have two questions to close. Question number one. Have you rested in the truth of this gospel? Not only believed, but rested in it. Like, like have you experienced that transition from living under the law to living under grace, from living under this just pinned down fear that I have to act this way in order to get something other than living in the grace that's been given to you through Jesus Christ? Understand this morning that the law cannot save you. No, God's law or no law or any law in this world cannot save you. Only Jesus can. And then secondly, if you have, can you be entrusted with this gospel? Can you be trusted with this gospel? Meaning, are you willing to be sent out to the places and people God has surrounded you with to live out this truth and share the good news? We can't save anyone, but we can be stewards of the gospel and use it not as a weapon to bash people with, but as a weapon to protect and serve them with. And so when Christians and churches do not use this passage in the right way, when, when Christians and churches uh, use this as a weapon to bash people with, here's how it reads, all right? Hang with me one more minute. Here's how it reads, that God will condemn all those who do these things in this list. And we bash him with it. God hates the lawless and disobedient. God hates the unholy and profane. God hates the sexual immoral and, homo and those who practice homosexuality. And you just wait, liars and perjurers. Your time is coming. God hates it. But when a church is entrusted with the gospel that is shaped by love, it reads like this. Jesus died for the lawless and disobedient. Jesus died for the ungodly and sinners. Jesus died for the unholy and profane. Jesus died for those who strike their fathers and mothers. 
Jesus died for murderers. Jesus died for the sexually immoral. Jesus died for men who practice homosexuality. Jesus died for the enslavers and the liars and the perjurers. And I know this because Jesus died for me too. So come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And it's never too late to lay it all down and follow him. Let's pray. Father, we are indebted to your word because it is your word that reveals the grace that you have given to us. That, Father, we can live in the freedom of knowing that no one is too far gone because we weren't too far gone for those who have made that decision to follow you. And I pray, Lord, that we can be entrusted as a church in this area, in this year, to proclaim the good news in such a way where it is actually good news. Father, give us feet of stone that stand on the rock of truth with full conviction. And Father, give us hearts of flesh that love and have compassion on and with this world in a way that we can reach them with and for the love of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, let it be true. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's now stand together and respond in song by aptly singing, Behold Our God.